there's going to be like really high quality profiles. Like that's what people want on the dating apps these days. You don't want the people with one photo holding a fish with sunglasses that don't say anything about who they are. Like we're over that. Amanda Bradford is the founder and CEO of The League, a social and dating app that caters to ambitious professionals. After graduating from Stanford University as a single woman, Amanda wondered how she was going to meet someone with the same career goals and ambition. So she decided that she would be the one to create the solution and launched The League in 2015. Seven years after launch, The League was acquired by The Match Group, and she's sharing all of her business secrets with us. Coming up, how Amanda found her startup team, the unique way that Amanda acquired her first users on the app. Is all press good press? She shares her thoughts and advice. And finally, the viral blog post that put The League on the map. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Amanda, I am so excited to sit down with you this afternoon to hear all about your story and journey building The League. I still remember the first time I heard about The League because I was already with my husband at the time and my business partner, Courtney, who I wish was here today recording with us, found out about it and downloaded it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. This is like so different from all of these other apps and platforms that are out there. But before we get into everything about what you've created. Did you always know growing up as a child, like, I want to start a business one day. I want to be an entrepreneur. Not really. I actually, funnily enough, my mom found this little class project I had to do back in the day. And one of the questions was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I want to be something glamorous, like an actress or a writer. And so I don't think, you know, when I was young, I didn't even really know about running a business or starting a business. I had no one in my direct vicinity that had started and launched business. So I didn't really get exposed to entrepreneurship until really until business school. So it, it you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, showing people role models as early as possible. And I, I didn't even know, you know, that that was an option. I, but I did, like, as I look back, you know, I, I did sell friendship bracelets, very overpriced friendship bracelets. I sold mixed CDs. I, you know, I was the first one to get a burner and then I tried to make money, you know, make enough money to pay for the, the CD burner back in the day. So I did have, you know, those kind of entrepreneurial itches that, that came out in certain ways. But yeah, that I, you know, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to launch a dating, <laughs> I mean, the dating space, especially I had no idea. <laughs> what was your career path like? I always wanted to do something in tech. So my dad was very techy. We were like one of the first families to have the internet, to have a PC, to, you know, I remember growing up playing Oregon Trail, The Sims, all the, you know, MS-DOS having to connect to the internet, all the sounds. So I was like very much a, you know, I guess the kind of first digital native, if you will. And so, you know, I, ha I was exposed to, to him, my dad being in tech, he worked at IBM. So I wanted to study computer science. Um, I also wanted to be in the FBI. That was a big dream of mine. And that was one of the pathways in was to be really good at computers because uh, they needed people at that time. No one, you know, everyone was computer revolution was happening and the 
FBI didn't have a lot of people. So I was like, that'll get me in. So I went to Carnegie Mellon to study computer science. And then I ended up not getting the FBI internship, which was like a huge wrench in my plan. I was like pretty demoralized from that. And, you know, I... I started being like, okay, well, what are the other options out there? Um, this is when like Google was coming of age, uh, Salesforce.com was coming of age. So I ended up looking into going into to kind of classic big tech companies. So when I graduated, I, I took a job with Salesforce and that was right when, you know, the cloud was, was just taking off and Salesforce was, you know, up into the right, like a rocket ship. Uh, so went out to San Francisco and then that's when I got exposed to like the startup culture, the hustle culture, the fact that, you know, all these amazing technology companies were being built and, you know, a bunch of my friends had, had gone to Google. I ended up getting, you know, switching and, and getting a job at Google and working there. And then there I saw a lot of women who had MBAs and a lot of the women in upper management had MBAs. And that got me thinking, maybe maybe that's what I need to, to get to the next level. You know, you kind of are what, what you see in front of you. So I'm, I'm definitely, you know, very glad that I, I did move from Salesforce to Google and, and get get that perspective because at Salesforce, you know, the, I was sort of in more of the sales organization where that wasn't as as big of a you know the credentialing wasn't wasn't as big of an emphasis and I would have maybe never even thought to go to business school and so then and then when I started applying for business school, um, I got into Stanford, which is like the best entrepreneurship program in the world, basically, and that's when I really got exposed to the startup scene. I did a, a internship in venture at Sequoia Capital, so I got to see kind of how the best of the best venture funds were run, um, and it made me really want to be on the other side of the table. I was talking to all these founders, listening to them, you know, chasing their dreams, chasing the these big impactful ideas, and I was over there being like, oh, I'm supposed to give them money. I'm supposed to give money to the best ones. Like, how do I even know? I haven't even done any of this stuff. So I felt like almost a little bit of a fraud in that internship or in that career path without having done done it myself. And so um, after that internship, I decided that I really wanted to to try something. And if I failed, I failed. I could go back to kind of big corporate. You know, it, those jobs still exist. And I kind of decided just to have faith in myself. And, and so when I graduated Stanford, I, I decided that I, well, I happened to be single. So I had my own, you know, I had a problem of like, I was like, not sure how to date in the real world. And all the, I was leaving this great haven of very ambitious, successful men. And I was like, where am I going to find these guys again? I'm about to leave this, this ecosystem. And so I decided just to build it myself. And so I launched it about four months after I graduated. And I actually, because I'm like a pragmatist and I hedge and whatever you want to call it, uh, I feel like women in general, we're, we're, we're very good at like, you know, making sure, being pragmatic and, and we're swinging for the fences, but we have backup plans. So my backup plan was to, was a job with Facebook. So I actually had a job that I, that I accepted, but I asked if I could push it out to November. And so then I gave myself a four month window to basically work backwards from that job offer to say, I need to launch something and see if this business has legs. And if it does... I can turn down the offer and not go. But if it doesn't, I, I still have this like safe job offer because I was about to be $200,000 in debt after wow. business school. So, so I always say like when you're wondering, and it sounds like a lot of your viewers are the same, maybe they're doing it on the side or you're not sure when, when to go full in. And um, I really recommend giving yourself that timeline because if I didn't have that, um, I'm not sure that I would be sitting here today talking to you about it because it, it it was such a forcing mechanism and to get something off the ground starting really in May and out into the market launched live by November is like a really great timeline to kind of do an entire app in. And so it's it's tight, but it, it's definitely motivating to get something out and to kind of push yourself. I don't know about you, but I procrastinate to the last minute. So if I don't have these deadlines, I could polish something and make it perfect forever and say, it's not ready. It's not good enough. It's, you know, so it's, it's sometimes you just got to like, get it out into the world, even if you're not totally happy with it. 
Oh my gosh, absolutely. I've seen so much in business, especially over the past few years. Like if people in general are not given deadlines, things don't get done. If you have this like never ending, like, oh, you know, I can get this done whenever, like it's never going to go to the top of your priority list. It's not going to happen. So I'm all about like deadlines for absolutely everything to get stuff done. So take me back to that four month period of time. So you have this idea to start the league. Tell me all the things you did during that four month window to develop this app, build your marketing strategy, get it out into the world. Like, take me back. What happened? Well, it really started with, I became single and I started using these other dating apps that were taking off, right? It was the beginning of the Tinder revolution is what I call it. So, you know, Tinder was out. I think there was Coffee Meets Bagel, Hinge, OkCupid. Like there's, you know, I'm dipping my toe in all these these dating apps. And then on the, the back end, I'm realizing I'm about to leave, you know, this business school ecosystem where I think in our class of 300, there was like, I don't know, 20 couples that were formed. So I was like, clearly ambitious people like each other. And like, this is a very good way to match people up when you put like, uh, you know, very smart, very educated and very driven people. They, they like to, to be together. So I was like, how do I create that same ecosystem? I, you know, honestly, like selfishly, because I was like, I, I need, I want to find someone and fish from that ecosystem. Right. And I was about to, to leave. And so I was like, you know, there's these people that are going to be graduating from Harvard, from Wharton, like all these other business schools are going to be pouring people out uh, into the world. So I was like, why don't I like literally go and put them all into an ecosystem? And so I really did start with grad school with a kind of a grad school focus, because again, I, I was building it for myself. So I was like, you know, my friend had gone to Harvard Business School and I asked that him to post it to his Facebook groups. And my other friend went to Wharton. I had him post it. And then a journalist was in the Wharton Facebook group and she saw it and then she covered it. And then all of a sudden we had press. And then all of a sudden we were like the Harvard for of dating apps where we were super selective. And even though it was never only meant for Ivy League, it was just really how I seeded it. For better or worse, we kind of got a stigma for being like this Ivy League elite app where you, you know, you had to have gone to one of a select handful of colleges. And that was never the case. I went to Carnegie Mellon. It's not, it's not Ivy League. It's like, you know, I, I was never trying to create a bar between certain schools. I was just literally seeding the app with the people that I was excited to meet in San Francisco. So I really started it in San Francisco. And I have an engineering background, but I wouldn't call myself like a real engineer, a sort of like a hacky engineer. So I did a lot of the HTML for the app, but I needed someone to actually build the iOS code, right? And that's like a whole kind of whole separate beast to, to build a native mobile app. I can share all sorts of war stories about that. But so I went through a couple different developers and they didn't work out. And I went through an agency that didn't work out. So then I finally hired a guy who was like 22, coming out of Stanford undergrad. He didn't even have an engineering degree. He think he studied international relations, but he had actually taken an iOS programming class. So we were kind of like the blind leading the blind, but I was like, okay, if you can build the the app, here's the wireframes, here's how I want it to look and feel. And then I basically like focused on the wireframing, the product management, and then going door to door, getting user feedback, and then getting people to sign up and give me kind of like a focus group situation and tell me what they thought of the app. So I was sort of doing a little bit like, I guess, growth hacking. I have this, this YouTube video called pre-gaming your launch, but I had a lot of different parties before we launched. And so I was kind of known around town as like the girl with the waitlist app because like it wasn't live yet, but I was like making everybody download my app to go to a singles mixer in San Francisco. And all they would do is just be on this waitlist and like the app didn't work at all. It was just like one screen, but I had a lot of parties and I started collecting, collecting, kind of collecting people into the database at that point. And so there was almost like a four month period of time where I'm literally just seeding 
seating the party, if you will, because, you know, I didn't want to have a cold start problem. When you're building a marketplace, that's sort of the worst case scenario is you open the app and no one's there and there's no one to match. And then the whole thing doesn't work and nobody comes back and you, you shoot yourself in the foot. So I wanted to really mitigate that by having amazing people there when you open the app. And so that was kind of me going door to door in San Francisco. So tons of people from where I worked at Google, Salesforce were on, they got their friends on, you know, like Cal Poly was a big, uh, a lot of people at Cal Poly at Salesforce, and then there's a huge Cal Poly part. And then there was a bunch of people from Carnegie Mellon that I got on. So it was very much like Amanda's friends at the beginning. And then, and then it I mean, you, you created it for yourself anyway. So uh, that know. was the whole so point. Everyone <laughs> joked that it was like Amanda's sh- shopping for a husband app. But yeah, and then, and then, you know, we started seeing them sharing it. And then it got a lot, you know, less about grad school students and more just about like people in, you know, demanding jobs in San Francisco that didn't want to you know, actually wanted to know more about someone than playing hot or not. So like the existing apps, my issue with them was all you're seeing is a face, which is great. But like, I want to know more than that. They didn't talk about your job, your education, your career, your interests, your passions. I want, you know, you're spending 40 hours a week at your job. I I think that's an interesting thing to know about someone. And so I found myself like doing this social media stalking on, on people I would match on Tinder or something. And then be like, Oh, he had a shirt wearing Duke. And he said he was a lawyer and his name is this. So I'm going to go like, try to find him on LinkedIn. And I was like, this is so inefficient. Why don't we just make this a requirement to get in? And so that was a big kind of change that I made was like, let's use LinkedIn. Let's actually use it as part of the application process. And let's make people put in an application instead of just downloading the app and starting to like, you know, swipe around, like, let's actually make you put a good solid application together. If you don't put your photos in and you don't fill out your information, you're not getting in. And I'm okay having a no shirt, no shoes, no service policy. It's my bar. And like, let's have standards that are high and let's not, you know, let's be unapologetic about them. And I think, you know, I think people really gravitated to that, especially career focused women that didn't want to swipe through thousands of tire kickers and people that were looking for something casual. But then, you know, because of that sort of, hey, you know, you might not get in kind of stance. We we also sort of got that stigma of like, oh, we're elitist and, you know, we're for the 1%. And so I think that's the, that's, you know, really why we're trying to kind of relaunch with a messaging that this is for goal-oriented people. This is not about where you went to school or having a certain title or a certain income level. It's about like driven, ambitious people that find that trait sexy and want, you know, want a partner that that shares that ambition. So... I love that. And thank you for sharing that. I have so many questions for you now based on everything that you just shared. How did you handle the criticism that started to come quickly from say, you know, this is an elitist app? Like, did you have a hard time like dealing with that response from people and the press? Yeah. I mean, I always, I'm like a fighter person. (laughs) So like my first instinct is to like punch back. And if you see, you know, even on like YouTube comments or Instagram comments, when people like, trolls come in. Like I, I want to write back, but I like held back because, you know, we were focusing on building the product. We were launching in different cities. There was a lot of momentum. We were getting a lot of press because of it. And, you know, we didn't have any marketing budget. Like I'd spent, I had only raised 2.3, basically I launched it without on like 75 K basically. And then we launched it and then I closed a, a 2.2 million dollar round. And then that essentially almost all went into rebuilding the app from scratch, hiring very expensive engineers to like actually make the product be scaled for, you know, the real world, it was sort of like a a proof of concept. So I didn't really have a marketing budget. So we were getting all this press that was calling us Tinder for the 1% Tinder, you know, Harvard of dating apps. And people were downloading it when they were reading that, that stuff. So you're kind of like, well, you know, what do I do? Do I fight it? But it's sort of working. And and also it's like driving growth. So I kind of stuck my head in the sand. And then, you know, about 
you know, for better or worse, you get a couple months go by. And then I'm realizing like there's people that are actually aren't signing up for the app because they think it's elitist or they think it means that they're pretentious. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, this is literally what I built it for these, these people to like be more efficient in their dating, to find other people that have, you know, have this career ambition. And it's, it's not about excluding. It's about like literally having a more safe curated close-knit community once you're inside. Because if you start letting everybody in, as we know, we all have used Twitter, we've all used Reddit, we've seen all these apps. It is a race to the bottom if you don't hold standards for people. And so it's like, just because we make you put an application in, that doesn't make us elitist. And like, you know, the number two and number three place to meet people are school and work. They make you put really huge applications in. And guess what? Not everybody gets in. Not everybody gets a job at Google. Not everybody gets into to college. Those are their college of choice. And that doesn't make them elitist institutions, it means they have standards and there's a a bar of entry, right? And so I wrote a blog post called I'm Not an Elitist, I'm an Alpha Female. And that was like sort of like my magnum opus of like all my kind of anger about it coming out and just being like, I want to set the record straight. And, you know, it was great because when a lot of people read that, I changed a lot of minds with that article. And now we link to it in, you know, onboarding and I put it on the website and I try really hard to, to lead with that and say like, look, this is why I built this. I think this is a better way to have a curated dating pool. And I think this is a better way to ultimately find your, your match. And like, you know, it's not about like kicking people out. It's about like making sure the community is proud to be there, has high standards, is putting together an application and, and is an intentional community. So um, so that was like my, my response. But for the most part, I kind of ignored it at the beginning. And I do think it can be very distracting if you're just worried about the criticisms. A lot of people don't even read their comments. You know, these creators nowadays are always like, don't read your comments, don't read the YouTube stuff. It's just don't let it get in your head. So I, I think I, I did a pretty good job of ignoring it for the most part, but it definitely like it definitely does stick with you and you're, you kind of have this boiling inside during that time. Well, it sounds like you were able to use that to then fuel the response that actually continued to help with marketing. So it all, it all seems to have worked out. It's just, it's, you know, hard in those moments dealing with as just a founder in general, any type of criticism or feeling like you've created this business and it's your baby. And then people are saying things that aren't kind about it. It's like, you want to be like, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it. But that's marketing and that's press. And it's part of the part of what we have to deal with running businesses. Right. I think we got like a Gawker headline that was like, you know, the dating app CEO is a asshole or something or like, I'm not an elite or I'm not a, I'm an asshole. And then we got like a New York Post article that was like, you know, it's an app for terrible people that think highly of themselves. So there's some, star- but definitely some snarky headlines that I was like, and I had, of course, they put like pictures of me and my friends. And I was like, I'm so sorry, guys. But then again, what's so funny is that then they're like, our signups would shoot through the roof because it would be like, oh, wait, not everybody can get in. And oh, also like, there's going to be like really high quality profiles. Like that's what people want on the dating apps these days. You don't want the people with one photo holding a fish with sunglasses that don't say anything about who they are. Like, we're over that. So it was like, it was interesting how it, they say no, no press is bad press, right? So it's kind of true. Up next, Amanda's lessons learned from outsourcing technology and how you can avoid these specific mistakes. I want to go back to something you said when you were talking about initially launching the app and trying to work with agencies and dev shops and freelancers and things not always working out so well. We have a lot of members in our community that are in the process of building tech or building websites. What advice can you share about your learning lessons from the mistakes that you made during those initial days? 
Tons. I feel like I should have a whole like podcast called like Engineering Nightmares. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> I, tell tell me the first solo, five minutes of it. <laughs> oh man, as a solo founder, so as a single founder, and I was technical, but like I, you know, I was sort of on the front end designy side. Like I was not, you know, person that rolled servers and did the whole AWS infrastructure and all that. Like back, I wasn't a back end engineer or anything like that. So I learned a lot. I drank from the fire hose. But my first learning was like I tried to do an outsource cheap person where, you know, he was in San Francisco, but then he had a dev shop in India. And so then I would like, in theory, work with him. And then he works with the engineers. And it was just, it did not work. Like it would, there was so long between when I would give feedback to what it would get to them, and then they would misconstrue what I was saying through him. And then it would come back to me a you know, day or two later, and it was exactly wrong. And like, not only was they, they didn't know English very well, but I had to go through a person. And so I, I was like very against that kind of outsourced model where you're not, you know, it'd be one thing if I was talking to the person in India and we were working together, but I was like working through a different person who was like another product manager. So it's like almost like there was just too many nodes when you're trying to build something from the beginning. So by, even though I got like a less experienced engineer who, you know, we had to rebuild his whole app because he, he didn't know how to kind of build more than a proof of concept. But even so, he was able to get a proof of concept built. And we sat next to each other for four months. Like I paid for a WeWork thing. We came in Monday through Friday, you know, worked from like 10 to 10 to five together. I basically like almost paid him to be like a, a co-founder for that period of time and be like, let's work together as if we were co-founders. We arranged a little, you know, I paid him in, I paid him cash, but also equity. So, you know, in a way it was, he was a little bit, you know, he was incentivized in the business with equity. And so we kind of like, got to work together. And I would like, when he would show me something, I could swivel my chair and say, oh no, I think it should go down there. And then he would do it. So it was so much faster. I don't think we would have ever gotten something out the door in four months if if we weren't sitting next to each other. So that was like, number one was like, and, I, and it was more, it was more expensive to pay him per month. Like, you know, he needed to pay his bills and his rent in San Francisco. So it was a lot more expensive, but like basically like pay up to have someone sit next to you is kind of my cliff notes on that. And then I think eventually we did end up I've had a lot of contractors and full-time people. And I, I now believe in having a mix of full-time employees and contractors building your tech. But I do think you want, you need, you need people that are going to be there and that are going to know the tech for the long term. So like if you can bring them in full-time and you do find someone that's a great technical partner, like grab them up because they're really hard to find. And it took me, you know, I always joke like hiring a VP of engineering is, is worse than dating because it was just like, you're going through and it's, it's hard. It's like finding your technical husband in a way. Um, and so we had, a, we had a lot of different, I had a lot of different at bats, I guess, and they, things would work for a certain time and then the tech would change. We would need a different skill set. So just be, be, you know, that's, I would say that's like the most important thing is finding a partner that, that will kind of be with you and you can work with on a rapidly iterate with very quickly. I know you mentioned um, just a few moments ago, giving that first hire, I don't know if he's a high, was he a full-time hire? No, he was a freelancer to start equity in the business very early on. We, I think we treated him as a, a paid contractor that had an equity agreement. How did you determine how much equity to give out in the early days and advice you can share for founders that are working on putting together a cap table right now and bringing on some early employees, like how do you decide how much equity to give out early on? It's hard. It's really hard, especially depending on how much, you know, you're bringing to the table and that person is bringing to the table and what they're actually going to be doing for you and what their long-term role is. Is it, are they kind of a short-term, Hey, I need you to get from point A to point B, or can they grow with the, the business? Do you think they're going to grow for us? you know, I really try to scope it as like, look, I need something in the app store. I want it 
in the app store by November. Can you help me? If you get into the app store, like by this amount, we're, I'm going to give you this kind of equity. So it's almost like a milestone based agreement. And then I don't want to share exact, but you know what, for me, I paid, I paid him a pretty fair, like monthly stipend to work on this. And so I, so to, because of that, I didn't have to give, you know, double digit equity, but you know, I, I was pretty generous as far as, you know, if we got the milestone, if we got it in, in the app store at the early days, like you just got to get this thing off the ground. And, and it's easy to get kind of in your head about, oh, I'm giving away too much equity and like all this stuff, but like a hundred percent of zero is zero. And like, if that person is going to get you off the ground and that's what I used to fundraise, I could show that I had, I had users that were sharing. We weren't monetizing in that version because it was very MVP, but it was basically like something I could go take and fundraise on. And that's almost like worth its weight in gold, like to even have that. And so I guess I, my philosophy is like, don't be too stingy on equity at the beginning. You're just really needing to get get something into the world. And then once it's successful, you can be a little bit more thoughtful about that. But just like, like I didn't over negotiate when we were fundraising, for instance, like, you know, my cap was not super high when someone negotiated it down, but they were wanting to give me another million dollars. I was like, okay, I'm going to take the $1 million, even though it's a little bit more, I'm giving away more equity overall than I really would have liked. But you always need more money. Also, like in general, it, when money's kind of given to you, you should take it. It's like fundraising's a, a beast and it's, you know, you think you can get it later. Maybe the market changes, you never know. So it's like, it's better to be safe than sorry. So I guess I'm in the kind of conservative boat of just like, be generous at the, early on, give, get people in, get, get things off the ground. And then when your flywheel has started, you can be a little bit more selective in the next stage of holding things a little closer to your chest. But at the beginning, you just need, you just need to get people on the bus. And if they need what they need to, to get in, like give them what they need to be happy and to be a full contributor. And so I always like to ask like, what would an ideal package look like for you to be fully invested for you to like, think about this on the weekends, maybe even work on the weekends. Sometimes I'm not saying you have to, but like, what do you need to be kind of a, a full time in? Cause I wasn't going to give 50% of, of equity to this person. And so we landed on what I think was fair at the time. Some people could could argue as generous, but, but I needed to get it off the ground. I didn't have the skills to do it. So you got to pay people. <laughs> Did you always know that you were going to build this business to ultimately sell it? Something I always recommend people do is to like really scan the ecosystem of your, where your business sits and interview founders that have tried and failed in your space that have maybe even tried the exact same business model and failed. That's like never a great sign. And like, you should see if you can go talk to them. So I talked to a ton of people in the dating space. There was a guy who was CEO at eHarmony that I knew through my Stanford connections. I sat down with him. He's like, run the other direction. The dating space is, is hard. And then I had interviewed another person that tried and failed. And he was trying to do kind of more dating by school. And he was actually trying to do like very like Ivy League only. And that was too small of a market. And he was like, you know, that was a good learning for me. It was like, we should definitely not go like Ivy League only, even though I was never really planning to. But like, it's just, there's not enough people graduating from these schools that are single. Like if you actually like look at the whole business, it's, it's not going to, you know, economics don't make sense. So, so the more I learned about the industry, the more I realized that like the best successes were basically almost all M&A, like very few had gone public. Now we have two public stocks, Bumble and, and Match Group or Tinder essentially. But at the time, you know, if I just like looked at based on history, I was like, the, the likely outcome is either I'll, I'll keep this as a profitable business and like kind of lifestyle business, or I'll, I'll sell it. And then most likely we probably wouldn't go public unless, you know, unless I found record breaking growth, which would be like highly unprobable, just given, given kind of the landscape. So I was, I think I had like a very self-aware 
awareness about it, about the industry and the difficulties of the industry. I think dating and gaming are known for being like really high failure rates. And so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily expecting to go become like a billion dollar startup, but, you know, I was sitting next to like Bumble and Bumble was taking off and you're seeing Tinder taking off. And so there is this like, maybe that could be me. Maybe we could have this hockey stick growth. But then when you actually look at the numbers of like who my target demo is, it's we're, we're never going to be as big as those mainstream mass market apps. And I think I realized that like we may only need 1 million users. So we need to price accordingly. We need to assume we're never going to have that. And so that's part of why I like backed into the prices we have, which sometimes we get flack for being expensive. But I'm like, look, I'm trying to build like a sustainable business that I could own and keep as a profitable business that could pay my employees fair, that could pay all of us, that could we could then have enough to invest in the business. And to do that, you had to you had to charge for the value you're providing and not be afraid to to charge high prices for like essentially a, a handmade, like curated app. So I guess the answer is I assumed that that would probably be one of the outcomes that I would need to do either sell or or lifestyle it. And we were kind of this unique position where I could have done both. We were actually highly profitable when I decided to sell it. But I think for me, I really wanted to to take the league into the big leagues. Like, and I felt like if I st- stayed as its you know full time owner, I owned a majority of the company. That was important to me. You know, we were always like kind of needing to be scrappy because I wanted to stay profitable. I didn't want to go back into the red. I didn't want to take too big of swings because I didn't want to ruin what I had built. And so you start almost like you start taking less risks, the more successful you get, because all my net worth was tied up in this business. I didn't want to do anything really like I felt myself taking less bold moves. And that's sort of where where we got the success that got me to where I am is that I am bold and I am risk seeking. And so I, I noticed that I was almost like holding back the company by being in this like majority ownership. And then I looked at, you know, what Match was doing with Hinge. Hinge, I think they bought Hinge at like, I don't know, very lo- revenue similar to us. And now it's, you know, the second in the portfolio after Tinder making hundreds of millions of revenue. And I'm like, I would love like my brand to be over there and to be able to be global and worldwide and be in this, you know, really impact, like impact the world, like at, at a big, big level, big numbers. And so for me, I felt like I needed to to kind of give it to the mothership of dating, which is Match Group, to fulfill its potential. So I guess I kind of felt like a proud mom that was like, you know, I joke, I was like, I'm like the mom that's like, uh, you know, like the kid gets into Harvard and you're like, you need to go, but I'll just be over here in like my my shack over here. But like, you know, it's what's best for my kid. And so it was it was actually kind of a bittersweet moment because it was mine. And it's I, I built every, you know, wrote every line of code and wrote every piece of copy and it's like very much a, a labor of love, but I feel like now it has a chance to, to be something that people all over the world can use. And I don't think I could have done that myself. Coming up, if you are a single and ambitious entrepreneurista, get ready to hear Amanda's advice. Lots of our women in our entrepreneurista community are driven founders who have not yet found the one. Can you share your dating advice for successful women who are looking to find that match? Well, I was one of those women so much so that I had to build my own app to solve this problem. And I think dating in general, the older you get and the like more successful you get as a person and the more independence you have, I think it gets harder and harder to like merge worlds with someone. I do think it like it does get harder. And that's just without a doubt. And I think these tools are really important. Like there is a reason why dating apps are taking off and going up into the right and meeting at bars are are going down. And um, I don't think that trend's going to change. And I know 
dating apps are frustrating. We all can agree to that. There's people that don't write you back. There's people that don't look like their profile. There's like people that are there and want one night stands, but maybe they say they want a relationship. So there's like a lot of just like noise and crap. And so that was really why I started the league was like, can I just get, can I just reduce that level of like noise and get straight to the people that actually want a relationship that are career focused are going to be okay with me being like pretty career focused, working late, like maybe not being a person that's going to come with them to everything because I have like, I'm working on other stuff. So I noticed that that was a trend that some people don't want that in a girlfriend. Maybe they want someone that's going to be a little bit more of a come with kid that like comes with them to everything. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, building my empire over here. So really trying to find people that respect that and actually like admire that part of me. And so that was really like the ethos for what I wanted the league to be as a place for these people to find each other, busy driven people. And the busier you are, the harder it is to to fit dating in. Right. So I think use the tools for what they are. I don't say you should only use the league. I think depending on where you live, where, you know, we, some of our cities are amazing. Some of our cities we haven't done much marketing in. So, you know, maybe other apps might be better, but it's, I'm the first to say like, I don't think, I think if you're, you know, it is a numbers game, unfortunately. And like the trick is, is just getting out onto dates because you can get stuck in this like funnel of like messaging, matching, bantering, and then never meeting. And then all of a sudden you have all these people you're texting, but you're not actually meeting. And then you don't know that they're even a, a good fit for you until you meet in person. So if you can like get to that faster with people and like use that as your success metric, like I'm going to go on three in-person dates this month, regardless of how you source them. And then here's the tools you can use to source them. And then look at these these dating apps as tools. And uh, you know the league has a really high percentage of people actually meeting and going offline. We have a really high percentage of people that get married. You're not going to get as many matches. It's, it's, you know, it's slower in that respect, but but they're like higher accuracy, I guess. And then, you know, if you couple that with like a larger app, you're probably going to get a lot more, be able to do a lot more work, but you could definitely be able to line up three dates, you know, using the tools that are at your disposal. And then I also think this is a little more controversial, but like, and it does feel a little cringe, but if you can do a FaceTime, it can really like tell you if there's sparks without you actually having to go drive 30 minutes, go park, go meet for coffee. Then, you know, you're like, it could save you a three hour date if on a, you know, five or 10 minute video video call, you can kind of suss out whether or not, you know, there's sparks or there's chemistry. So we do this thing called speed dating Sundays, where every Sunday you log in at 8pm, you get three dates, you go for three minutes, you get three video dates. And at the end, you say who you liked and didn't. So it's, you know, speed dating and in and out basically. And I've been out of the dating world for a very long time. So I'm like, this is it's so actually like the best feature. It's my like pet feature. The issue is like, of course, nobody likes to do one thing at the same time. So, you, you know, we haven't gotten like a majority of users to all come at 8 p.m. So you're not going to get, you know, the selection isn't going to be the same as when you're just doing swiping through the database. There's going to be more people in that version than like the live version. But if you, in theory, if you could get everyone to do the live version, in my mind, that's like the better, that's the future of dating. Cause then you're, you're not even dealing with this. Do you look like your photos? You know, you're hiding behind a static photo that might even be Photoshopped or if you're, you know, some of these apps have like scammers or bots on it using AI photos now. So it's like, we could like eliminate all that stuff by just doing video dates. So I, I encourage that. And like, you don't have to use the the speed dating feature. It could just be, Hey, do you guys want to, when you're matching, do you want to do a quick FaceTime tomorrow night and like have a glass of wine over FaceTime? It sounds weird. I know it sounds very pandemic, but it it can save you, you know, it, it can be a way to be more efficient if you are really focused on kind of being efficient with the dating process. And you don't have to be, but when I was building my business, I was like, I only want to spend this amount of time like searching. I don't want it to be a full-time job. And so I was always looking for ways to kind of check the box that I'm like still out there, like meeting people without having to like 
go on these three hour bad dates. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's such great advice. Can you talk to me more about your marketing strategy? What's worked for you and any upcoming campaigns that you have? Yeah, so we we were like, I like to say we were basically a bootstrap company in the sense that, you know, I did raise $2 million that basically went into rebuilding the app. So we, and then we focused on getting profitability, which we did. And so then we basically didn't really, you know, we were like break even for a long time. And so we didn't really have a big marketing budget. I think before we were acquired, I was spending like a million maybe a year on marketing. And most of those were going on to Facebook ads, which were, we had like never settle ads. You know, we had some that were like dual income is in or like, you know, ambitious. So there, it was pretty like classic marketing. Now that we're part of a big engine, I'm like getting to do the marketing I've always wanted to do, which is getting to actually write our own narrative and kind of shout from the rooftops. So we're getting to do a lot more, you know, we, we wrapped a subway in New York. We're getting like influencers, you know, we were having Tinks is like one of my favorite influencers. She's going to be getting to, you know, help, help us promote. We're like getting to actually like work with, people that I've always wanted to work with. We just never had like the budget or kind of marketing horsepower. We did what I did actually though, for the viewers that are, I guess, listeners, whatever, I don't know ever know which uh, medium everyone's here in. But when I was building it, I did a lot of events because you can actually break even on events. I would actually charge people tickets, just, you know, $10, $5. And it would be enough that I could kind of use events as a a marketing strategy locally. And so that was like how I built out San Francisco and uh, in LA. LA and New York also, we did probably like three or four or five events during the launches. And so that was something that we did on a very little budget. And then we did some Facebook ads, but it was like very, and then we got the press that was calling us, you know, the 1%. But so those are kind of our marketing tactics at the beginning. And now we're like hoping to kind of go out with this. We're doing a whole big gold digger campaign. You can see my hat here, but you know, the concept is, you know, the league is place for people who have big goals and want other people with big goals. And so we have a lot of like kind of innuendos about I like big goals and I cannot lie and be a goal digger and like that whole concept. So, you know, juxtaposing maybe kind of what some people might think about us as being a place for rich people that went to these fancy schools and instead really like juxtaposing that with no, these are like gold diggers. We're actually a, an app for gold diggers, right? So it's kind of a play. It's a fun play on words. So that's, so yeah, so that's the exciting part is that we're getting to to really like get to work with influencers and, and doing some of these kind of out of the box marketing ideas. We're hopefully going to do a big thing at our Basel next year for our 10 year anniversary. I hope I'm going to try to get like celebrities there and make it like very, just stuff that we couldn't have done before. Right. And just like big, big and sizzly and, and really like come reintroduce ourselves because like when I came out, this was, you know, we, this was 2014. So like a lot of like who I had initially marketed to is maybe in a different stage of life now. And so we almost need to, I'm calling it like a big reintroduction to the league or a, a reintro campaign. And I'm excited because it's kind of like a, the next chapter for the the business and getting to getting to say, I'm like to say we're like on varsity now. So we get to like market like a real brand. That's so fun. I'm so excited for you. There's like so many, I have so many other ideas for you. And right. I just... No, it's fun now. It's, I'm always like, what are your guys' ideas? We actually have like... Yeah, we can do, do it. Cool we can make it happen. Yeah. So years ago... your conference. We could yes. sponsor something at your conference coming Let's up. Let's do so. it. Let's do it. We'll definitely chat about it. And Courtney and I, years ago, we made shirts that said Gold Digger in 2015. You did? Yes. Oh my gosh. I'll send you the pictures. Just, yes. We have a, we have vintage gold digger shirts. So no, I love it. I think the campaign is genius and I'm so excited for you and all you've accomplished. And thank you so much for spending the afternoon sharing all of your learnings. They're so valuable, especially for our entrepreneurs who are starting a business now or building a business to scale and then sell. Your advice has been so, so important. So thank you, Amanda. And congrats again on everything. 
thank you and congrats on an amazing podcast and good luck to everyone building their business. I hope I can be helpful. Yes. Oh, last question for you. What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Oh, man. Um, I just like to think it's a problem solver and it's someone that doesn't hear the word no and finds out another way to to make it no into a yes. Right. So I, I always say like that's sort of the DNA is there is no, you know, figure out where you want to go and figure out how to get there. And there's ways to do it. You just might have to be a problem solver. Yes. Where can everyone find you, follow you? And for those that are interested in signing up for the league, what's the best place for them to do so? Yes. So sign up, go to theleague.com. We'll give all your listeners, skip the lines, so maybe message your concierge entrepreneurista, and then we'll we'll hook you guys all up. And then I'm just at sign Amanda Bradford. I'm not super big on social, but I'm thinking about now in this stage of the company, I probably should be. So open to any tips from any of you guys on building the following, because that's a whole nother separate part of building a business that we never really focused on. We really were more, you know, more on like building users into the app. So, um, but yeah, so I'm Amanda Bradford starting to do a little bit on Twitter and Instagram. Haven't yet gotten onto TikTok yet, but I'm thinking about it. So awesome. Well, we'll link out to everything so everyone can find you in the show notes below. Amanda, thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. 